This morning in our sermon series on the Psalms, Divine Soul Music, we come to Psalm 24, a psalm which, when we read it, sure seems like it was written for Palm Sunday. And I'll talk about that a little bit as we get into the sermon itself. The King of Glory approaches his city, and David writes a psalm of great praise for that King of Glory. Let me read it for us. Again, with a reminder that this is God's very own word. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So in reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, as we come before it this morning, once again let me lead us before the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we come before your word and ask your blessing. As it goes out, may it fulfill the promise that you have made of it that it does not return to you void, rather that it accomplishes what you purpose and is successful in the things for which you send it. For us, as always, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and ears so that we might see and hear the things that you would have us learn from your word this morning. Plant that word deep in our hearts, make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we might walk as you would have us walk. Lord, we ask it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In 1 Kings chapter 18, there's the famous story of Elijah battling against the priests of Baal and defeating them. He taunts them, he ridicules them, and ultimately fire comes down from heaven and consumes the bull that Elijah has prepared. Now, this comes in the context of a great drought that is upon Israel that Elijah had predicted would come, prophesied that it would come. And this drought still grips Israel. And as Elijah sits, hands between, or head between his knees, he looks up and over the horizon sees a small cloud gathering. He tells King Ahab of Israel, the northern kingdom, to return home, return home before the rain starts. The road gets muddy and your chariot might stick. And Elijah himself gathers up his robes and runs before Ahab's chariot to Jezreel. And that little description there of 
Elijah running before Ahab's chariot has caused some interpretation issues in the, in the word. What does that mean? Popular interpretation is that Elijah has been given some sort of miraculous running ability to suddenly speed ahead of the chariot and beat it to Jezreel. But that popular interpretation has problems. First, it's not really in the text at all. But there are things we can learn from the wider context of Scripture. Let me give a couple examples. 1 Samuel 8, chapter 11. The people of Israel have come to Samuel and said, Give us a king to go before us like the other nations. And God tells Samuel to grant them their request, but also to warn the Israelites that this new king, among other things, will take their sons to ride in his chariots, to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 1, Absalom has risen up in rebellion against David, his father. He wants to be king. And we read that Absalom got himself a chariot and 50 young men to run before it. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. This is after David's death. His son Adonijah wants to be king now, battling the succession with other sons of David. We read there that he gets a chariot and has 50 young men to run before it. What's going on with young men running before chariots in the ancient world? Well, it's, it's, it's no miracle. It's part of the duty of serving a king. It's, it's an office. Think of the men who ran before the chariot as, as the ancient equivalent of, of what today we call in politics an advanced team. When our president travels within the U.S., around the world, there's an advanced team that goes out. Part of it is Secret Service, part of it are officials in the administration, State Department people, and they go and prepare for his arrival. Make sure it's safe. Make sure that uh, the right food has come from the states so that he doesn't get poisoned. Make sure that all the meetings and arrangements are set up. Figure out the traffic routes. All these sorts of things to prepare for the arrival of the president. That's really what's going on with these young men who ran before the chariot of the king back in ancient times. Think of travel back then. You're on a dirt road, pounded dirt. And because it's the only road around, it's probably busy. People traveling with carts and wagons full of goods. People driving sheep or cattle along it because it's the easiest path to follow. A crowded road, and as the king travels down that road, he's got young men running ahead of him. Clear the way, clear the way, the king is coming. He's probably not traveling at, at faster than a walk or a slow trot. And so these young men have the ability. They've got to be young, because let me tell you, when you get old, you can't run fast anymore. <laughs> these young men run ahead and prepare the way. Some of them even to the city itself. The king is coming. Open the gates. He's about to enter into his city. So Psalm 24 is a, is, is a psalm that could be sung by these ancient advanced men. But what we see when we read the psalm, what becomes very clear, is this isn't a psalm for just any king. It's a song to prepare the way for the Lord God himself. To tell the city of God itself 
that God is about to enter in. Open up the gates, lift up the doors. The King of glory is about to enter in. The psalm shows us God's glory in three ways, and that's what I want to focus on this morning, these three ways that the glory of God is shown in the psalm. First in verses 1 and 2, very briefly, but succinctly and and powerfully, we're shown the, the King of glory as the owner, the possessor of all things, the earth itself. In verses 3 to 6, the, the, the glory of the king is shown in, in the character of those who would come into his city. They must be clean, they must be pure if they want to approach him <coughs> excuse me, and enter into his city. And then in verses 7 to 10, we're shown the call, the cry, the triumphal entry of the king of glory into his own city. So verses 1 and 2, 3 to 6, and then 7 to 10. We'll look at those. Three sections of the psalm this morning. The ownership of this king of glory over all things is declared in verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Not one thing is excluded. The fullness of it, the completeness of it, the entirety of it. Everything in it is his, and all who dwell in it are his as well, because he founded it and established it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Every single person, every single creature, every single living thing on the face of this earth belongs to the Lord. Why? Because he's the one who made it. He made it, it's his. Simple expression of private property, except in a divine, global, universal sense. Nothing is out of God's sovereign possession or sovereign rule and control, because God is the king and creator of all things. There's that famous quote from Abraham Kuyper. We've all heard it, I think, and and it's not uh, a waste of time, I think, to remind ourselves of it. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's not just a possession of things. Think about the way Kuiper is putting it. The whole domain of our human existence, our very lives, our actions, our thoughts, our words, our deeds... Everyone everywhere owes this king of glory their allegiance. Everyone, everywhere. There's no exceptions. And not just allegiance, but owes him their thanks and their appreciation, their gratitude, their thanksgiving for the good things that they have received from his generous hand. He's provided all their good things out of the fullness of his own possessions. It's a simple lesson right here in the first two verses of the psalm. Do we live our lives in a way that demonstrates, that shows that we understand that God is king over everything? That he's our creator, the provider of anything and everything that's of any good 
that we have anywhere at all in our lives? Do we show that kind of gratitude, that kind of thanksgiving, that kind of praise? God has given me everything good and worthwhile that I have. In every domain of my existence, at home, God is king. We like to say the husband is the king of his castle. Eh, maybe. God is the king. At your job, God is your king. Bosses like to think that they are kings. They're not. God is your king at work. You have to obey him before you obey anybody else. If you're at school, God is your king. With your family, God is your king. With your friends, God is your king. Driving down the road, walking down the road, God is your king. So wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, whatever I say, however I act, whatever choices I make, whatever thoughts I pursue, whatever decisions I take, I need to recognize and act as if God is my king. How often do we have that thought at the forefront of what we're doing as we go about our day-to-day lives? But really, this is part of what this psalm is calling us to do in the first two verses, to have that present reality in our minds that God is our king. Well, how do we approach this king? Who can dwell in this king's city? Verses 3 to 6 answer this question. They ask and answer the question. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who can be with this king? Who can live in his city? Well, the psalm tells us. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. The one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. The one who does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands and a pure heart. What we do and, and what we are. Our actions and our being. Outward and inward holiness. You know, we look at back at the medieval church, look at how the, the Roman Catholic Church had built up the system of outward holiness and outward works. Do this, do that, follow this ritual, do this right, make this sacrifice, participate in that sacrament, pay this indulgence, do this prayer, go on this pilgrimage, do, 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 and be holy. And the Reformation came along and rightly criticized that. It's not what we do that justifies us before God, it's, it's faith. Righteousness comes by grace, through faith, not by works. And so we corrected that error, but then I, 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 I kind of look around at the world now and ask, where are we now? We always fight the battle about our works. This is why Paul, I think, in part wrote Galatians. We're all, we're all recovering Pharisees. As Phil Riken puts it. But I think now we tend to focus more on the inner side of things. As if we could achieve having a pure heart. We focus on feelings and emotions and, and try to escalate that feeling of purity or devotion through, through uh, music and, and lighting in the sanctuary, through the atmosphere, through stories and, 
and testimonies that tug at our hearts. As long as we feel good, as long as we feel right, as long as it advances our happiness and our joy, then it must be okay. And it, it means we're more devoted to the Lord and we have a purer heart. It's, it's really just another form of works. It's just inward. But we somehow think we can have pure hearts. In fact, I, I think you, you could argue that the, the point of view of many, if not most, evangelicals today is that people are basically good. They're broken, and they sin, but Jesus paid for those sins. They're basically good. They just need to be encouraged to be good. Scripture says we're polluted. We stink. We're filthy. So there are two problems here. There's the outward righteousness and the inward righteousness that's, that's absent. Who has these clean hands? Who has this pure heart? And then it's, it's, it's amped up from there. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false? This is idolatry. Lifting up our soul to things that we adore and we worship and we admire. We all have idols that we create and we battle against those idols daily. Fame or fortune or success or recognition or money or status or possessions, whatever it might be. Things that we look to for satisfaction in life instead of the God of creation, the King of glory. The one who rejects those idols and doesn't turn to them may ascend the hill of the Lord. And then he adds as well, one who does not swear deceitfully. No gossiping, no telling tales, no lies, no spreading false rumors, no slander against our neighbor, no talking down behind their back. None of us do that. <laughs> no, we all do. Verse 4 is a tremendous challenge. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who could be part of the family, the household of God? Well, judging by this criteria, list of criteria in verse 4, nobody can. Here's another example where the Psalms throw out something at us that ought to just blow our minds, shock us. Who can be this person? Like we asked in Psalm 32, who is this fictional person <laughs> who has clean hands, who has a pure heart? Who doesn't worship idols? Who doesn't speak falsely? Who is this fictional person? We're almost left in despair. Who can this be? Well, it must be somebody, because whoever it is receives blessing from the Lord, righteousness from God, and is part of the generation of those who seek him, the face of of the God of Jacob. So there's somebody, but who is it? Well, I'll get there. We know one person can enter into the city, and that's made clear by verses 7 to 10. The king himself can enter into the city. And in fact, in the context of the psalm, he's really the only person who can. 
God himself, God himself may enter into that holy city. God himself ends up then being the solution to the problem in verse 4. And that should be no surprise, because we all know the gospel, and we've seen this story before. In the matter of sin committed by all of mankind, rebellion against God, rebellion against his holiness and his holy law, man is the offending party. God is the offended party. And normally in human relations, it's up to the offending party to make things right. Apologize. Make restitution. Restore the relationship with the offended party. But God does something completely different. As the offended one, the innocent one, he's the one who makes things right. The glorious king enters into his own city and makes things right. As he approaches the city, the cry goes out. It rises up for the gates of the city to lift up their heads and the doors of the city, the ancient doors, to be lifted up. The king is coming. The king is approaching. Let him in. Who is this king? Who is this king who can enter into the city? He's the Lord. He's strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. He's a victorious king. He's the Lord of hosts. Only he may enter into the city. Who is this king of glory? Well, we know, don't we? It's Palm Sunday. We read the story of Jesus entering into the city. The son of David. Again, I love how providence works itself out in the readings of Scripture. What did we read about David? How victorious he was. <laughs> the vast kingdom that he conquered. The territory that was under submission to David, the great king. Expanding the territory out to the promised limits of the promised land that God had given to Abraham. Now Christ's himself enters into the holy city, the holy hill. But he does so for us. There's an old tradition, I'd love to verify this, but ancient rabbis apparently say that on the first day of the week, the psalm for worship was Psalm 24. Part of the regular weekly worship of the people of God in that era. When did Christ enter Jerusalem? On what day of the week? The first. If the sources are correct, the very day that Jesus was entering into the city, the people of Israel would have been singing this psalm. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. The same day that they were singing this psalm, Jesus was making his triumphal entry into the city of David, Jerusalem. And who is he who enters in? Well, Jesus fulfills the conditions of verse 4, doesn't he? He has clean hands. He has a pure heart. He did not lift up his soul to what is false. He did not swear deceitfully, but always spoke truth, as God's very word 
made flesh. Who enters in? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Only Christ, who gave himself up for us, and gave us his clean hands and his pure heart, his singular devotion to God the Father, his love of neighbor, his pure speech. Only Christ can enter in. But when he gives us his righteousness, we follow right behind. And isn't that, doesn't that fit well with what we, what we learned last week? Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, who leads his sheep in and out of the sheepfold. Who leads us in? Our good shepherd. Leads us into the very presence of the holiness of God. In this case, of this great king of glory, there are no young men to go before him because there are no young men who can. He goes in first. He prepares the way. And he went into that city. As he told his disciples, as we read this morning, he went into that city to die and to rise again from death so that we, by grace and through faith, might die to our own sin and rise again with Christ to new life in him. This psalm is a psalm about Christ in the end, the King of glory. Who is the King of glory? Who is it who owns everything? Who is it who leads us into the holy presence of God? The King of glory, Christ, the Lord. Christ, strong and mighty, victorious over all of our enemies, over sin and death. Mighty in battle to overcome. Who is the King of glory? Christ. Christ is the King of glory. Let's remember that and worship Him and give Him praise this morning and each and every day of our lives. Let me pray for us. Our Holy God and Father, we are so tremendously thankful that our King of glory entered into that city and did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Offered up his perfect righteousness to you to be acceptable in your presence and then willingly gave his life as the payment, the atonement for our sins so that your just anger for our sins would be turned away from us and poured out upon him in our place our substitute. And that simply receiving this gift, repenting of our sins and believing in Christ as our Savior, we receive his perfect obedience so that we do have clean hands. We do have pure hearts. We do not chase after false idols. And we learn to speak truth. May that be ever more abundant and ever more evident in each and every one of our lives as we live in this world, waiting for the return of our King of glory. May he come, and may that day come quickly. In the meantime, strengthen us in our battle against our own sin, 
We do seek to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we do want to be those who love our neighbors as ourselves. Cleanse us from sin. Cleanse us from unrighteousness. Wash us in the robes of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his wonderful and precious name, the King of glory. Amen.